This, this is Brock and Salk. Powered through the Alaska Airlines Studio. Back in mornings from 6 to 10. On Seattle Sports and the Seattle Sports app. Jerry DePoto going to join us here in just a moment on Brock and Salk. If you missed it, uh, Shannon Dreyer reporting this morning and came on with us to tell us that the Mariners did indeed uh, sign Cole Calhoun to a minor league deal. He's already there in camp, and uh, she saw him walking through the clubhouse this morning. So uh, a minor league deal for Cole Calhoun, a little small breaking news this morning for the Mariners, and uh, a perfect way for us to uh, intro our next guest, Jerry DePoto. The Jerry DePoto Show, presented by Seattle Pump and Equipment on Seattle Sports Station. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Mike. How are we? Uh, we're great. I hear uh, you've got a new minor league deal in place with Cole Calhoun. Uh, we do actually. It's a uh, it's it's a uh, pending physical, so we got a we still have one step to take, but don't really anticipate uh, anything getting in the way, and hopefully. Uh, Cole gets in our camp as these games start tomorrow and see what we got, build a little depth here. Is this, oh, is it about depth or is it about making sure you can like stick him in Tacoma and not let him go anywhere else so he can't hurt you anymore? <laughs> I, we've, we've been on the, the receiving end of some uh, untimely blows from, from Cole <laughs> through the years. So yeah, between, I think Scott mentioned this morning, between wrapping up uh, Stephen Vogt to, to join our coaching staff <laughs> and bringing Cole Calhoun in, we've, We've done 67% of the work on yes. making sure our nemeses don't haunt us. Yeah, people keep saying you got to make up those 16 games with the Astros. It feels like that right there should at least count for a few of those. Uh, seriously, why Cal- Cole Calhoun? Why why bring him in and why now? Uh, you know, Cole, well, first of all, it's a, it's you're not going to find a better clubhouse guy than Cole Calhoun. Not really fiery. I, I've had experience with Cole dating back to his minor league years with the Angels and, and when he first broke in at the big league level. Uh, has a lot of leadership qualities that you look for. He's He's got energy. He's got passion for it. You know, he's got the, the right amount of, uh, you know, the the that, that fiery competitor in him that, that stands out and really kind of rubs off on the other guys. So, you know, that plus, you know, a really good defensive outfielder who can really throw that that has a history of hitting right handed pitchers in this league. And and he's a guy that I think will benefit with uh, some of the changes in the shifting rules. Mm, makes sense. So uh, one of the questions I've been asking Shannon each day is, you know, what's the loudest thing she's heard as she's walked around uh, uh, the facility? How about you? As you've been there now for, for the last couple of weeks, what, what's the loudest thing that you hear on a day to day basis? The loudest thing that I hear on a day-to-day basis, uh, probably the intersection between Bryce Miller's fastball and Gino coming in in the morning, and <laughs> you know, with a maybe a sample of Julio taking BP when he gets into one on the pull side. <laughs> so you've talked a lot about Bryce Miller. It's interesting how many times uh, you've brought up his name. You know, w- w- what should I make of that? Is he? He's just. It seems like he's often top of mind for you. Uh, you know, it's just an exciting young pitching prospect, and there's there's still so much that that we can learn about what Bryce's ceiling is. You know, he, he didn't pitch a lot prior to getting to Texas A&M. He was a position player who you know pitched sparingly, and and then went to college, pitched as a reliever for the Aggies, then went through his his first exposure as a starter in what turned out to be a, a shortened, very shortened COVID season. And only had one full season of pitching 
under his belt when we took him in the fourth round and he's done nothing but improve in every area. He's athletic, you know, he's performed at each level we've challenged him with. And for, for a pitcher of that type of upside and, and I guess relative lack of experience on the mound to, to jump through and, and truly dominate on his way to double a in such short time is, is, Pretty impressive, and and we think he's just scratching the surface of what he's capable of. Hey, do you still have trade talks going on? I mean, is is now still a busy time in terms of teams chatting with each other? Yeah, I mean, it's happening. It's not as robust as it was in December and January, but we're still having those conversations. And you know, it's as camps get going, and you know, the, the. the injuries just start jumping out. You know, when you get the the dings and the bruises, you expect those. When you get something more significant than that, uh, there's there's only so far your depth is going to be able to carry you. Uh, and you know, as as such, you wind up you keep in touch with teams on players you've been interested in, and you know your your phone's at the ready in the event that that something goes wrong. You know, in your camp or elsewhere, and inevitably it does. So those conversations will continue throughout the spring. We, uh, we, we read the article, the Tom Verducci article on Jared Kelnick and looking forward to seeing him when we get down there next week. Uh, what do you make of the swing changes he's made and, and how much can that be helpful to him moving forward? Uh, he's another one of those loud things. You know, the ball coming off his bat right now is, is loud. He's, uh, Jared's in a really good place and he's, uh, he's, he's generally been very quiet in, in the way he has approached it. You see a maturity that has, you know, that has evolved over time. His, uh, he, he's carrying himself in a different way in this camp. And I think it's, uh, in, in a good way. He's, he's evolving and maturing as a player. And, and really, we've seen him grow as a person. But uh, the, the swing changes he's made, he's made, they're fairly evident when you're watching his swing. It's not one of those where you look and say, boy, it's hard to see what changed. You know, mm-hmm. you do see a change in the bat path, particularly the angle through the zone and the finish. And, you know, right now he's, he's on everything he's throwing. He's got a great routine that he's working through in the mornings and, and during BP. And, now, it's a, I've said for you know a couple of years now it, it, the talent is so big and and his work ethic is is so real and I, I have a hard time believing that he's that he's not going to find success at this level and and hopefully this is that time where he breaks through. How much of his issues do you think have been swing related as opposed to the other you know elements of the game, whether it's pitch recognition or you know emotional regulation or any of the other things? What percentage of it do you think was swing related? Uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. It's a, it's probably some combination of many of the things that you just mentioned, and probably some others. It's you know that's that's growing up, that's maturing, that's that's understanding your skill set and how to apply it. But you know, Jared's always had a good swing. So he's been a flat swing, which is I think why when he was coming through uh, the I guess the amateur ranks and and into the draft. He was always forecast as an average power guy. You know, it's a, that, that this, it's a pretty swing. He's going to hit for average. Nobody ever really gave him, you know, the, the potential upside in the power department because he had more of that kind of flat gappy swing. And, you know, it, you don't have to watch Jared Kelnick hit too much to recognize that there is really high-end power. <laughs> and, you know, and that might be what has shown first in the big leagues is that he does have, you know, real power. And, 
you know, this might be an opportunity to blend what it was, you know, originally a, a, a really polished hit tool as, as a young amateur player and, and let his two skill sets meet, you know, the skill set that he's picked up as a pro, which is driving the ball over the wall and, and the skill set that he had, you know, as a, as a young player entering professional baseball. And, you know, and a lot of it is just about pitch recognition. You don't see the types of breaking balls, especially the breaking balls, but the high spin fastballs at the top of the zone, you don't see those in, in a ball. Uh, it's like you will see them in, in the American League West. So th- those are adjustments that all players have to make. Hey, you know, one guy that, that we haven't talked a, a ton about is uh, the, the guy you got back from from Arizona, Cooper Hummel, in the uh, Kyle Lewis deal. You know, I, I'm trying to figure out, and I was talking to Shannon about it yesterday, you know, what, what does his future look like? Is there a path for him to make the opening day roster? Tell me a little bit more about him. There is a path. You know, Coop is a, he's a really interesting guy. Um, there's, he's one of the most disciplined hitters in professional baseball. Uh, his selectivity at the plate, the pitches he swings at, the walk rate he draws. You know, obviously he has spent a career uh, in the minor leagues to this point as a very high-end on-base threat. He does it as a switch hitter who has the ability to play either of the corner infield spots, either of the corner outfield spots and catcher. And, you know, the, the catcher part of that is really where he gets intriguing. He's, he's always been a catcher dating back to his, his, you know, little league high school days. He hasn't had a ton of exposure uh, at, at the, the professional levels to catching over the last three years until last year when in emergency, he was thrown back into, you know, a catching I guess roll with the Diamondbacks without having had many reps in the previous two seasons, spending most of his time in the outfield. And yeah, it's, it's a hard place to get thrown back in as a major league staff, you know, trying to compete, but you know, we love his offensive skill set. We, we really do value the things he brings to the table. And, you know, he went to the fall league this year and focused exclusively on catching after, you know, going through last season with, with Arizona as a, an emergency fill and I, I think we saw things that we liked and we're going to see where he is this spring. There is a path to him being on our club and the advantage that having a third catcher on your roster gives you is that, you know, we have Cal Raleigh and Tom Murphy. Cal handles both lefts and rights and Murph really handles the lefts. And to have a guy that could allow you to DH one of those players on a given day is a real benefit. Well, yeah. And, and I, it makes, as you're talking, I, I, I didn't know he could play third base how well does he play third? Because I would think that would be another path for him as sort of a backup option to Suarez there. Yeah, he said this is something that's more of a, a developing deal. You know, he's played first, the corner outfields, the corner outfield a lot, and, you know, the, and catcher more recently. And the third base is something we talked about this offseason. He's played it a little bit in, in his minor league past. Uh, he doesn't have any exposure there at the big league level. How good is he at it? Don't know yet. <laughs> I would suspect it's not going to be Brooks Robinson like, but we will we'll give him a shot over there because we feel like those you know that type of utility or versatility really just makes us a much better team if he can handle it. Was Brooks Robinson that good? I, I mean, people are still using his name to describe third baseman after all these years. Was he that good? 
I, I mean, it's got 16 gold gloves. They That's tell a, a story. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of gold gloves and the highlights that we see, the transition. It's a, I never got to see Brooks Robinson play live. I've only seen him on film, but it's pretty phenomenal when you watch it. Mm. Hey, uh, I see this as really good news um, about Ty France yesterday, <laughs> revealing to all of us that he was dealing with a wrist injury throughout the, the back half of last year. You know, how, how much do you think that affected his performance? I think it crushed him. And, and, you know, and I admire the fact that he was kind of shucking it off as, you know, I'm, I'm just in a slump up. This isn't about my wrist. Ty's a pretty tough guy. He, as you might expect with a guy who gets hit as often as he gets hit and whose path was late round draft pick who had to show it at every level. I, I think the fact that Ty France turns up on, you know, lists like MLB networks, top 100 players and is an all-star is, there's, he's a really good player who had a really rough second half. But the, you know, from the time that the injury occurred in Oakland and then all of the ensuing bang-ups that he had to deal with, it's, uh, I, I think it really took a toll on him. And to his credit, he didn't try to blame you know, that as, the, as the, the, the culprit, so to speak. But he looks great in camp right now. He's, uh, it's, he's, it, he's Ty France, and then he can really hit. And, and I don't think – any of us is going to look at the second half of last year as an indication of what Ty France is about. Well, I, I was so happy to hear it. I mean, you know, it was, I sort of assumed that it was the case and everybody was telling me last year, no, you're crazy. He's fine. Like, well, I hope he's hurt because if he's not, that means that, you know, there's a big hole in Ty France that somebody has started to expose. So, you know, obviously great news moving forward if he is, if he is past that. And I guess that's a lead in then to Evan White, who's had a lot of his own injury uh, issues over the course of the last few years. And we've talked uh, about him a few times in the last few weeks, but uh, Shannon said he's been out uh, taking some outfield as well is that a, a potential path for him to contribute as well it is you know and that was part of the plan coming into spring training last year prior to his most recent injury and um, obviously it never got off the ground much Evan played a fair bit of outfield in college at the University of Kentucky he actually played the outfield for Team USA um, prior to, to his draft year so it's it's not foreign to him he's such a good athlete and Right now, he's actually been one of the most high-raising players in camp to this point. Is you know Evan looks 100% healthy. He checks out in the in the training room as 100% healthy. We know the the dynamic of of what his defense does on our infield, and you know what we're seeing right now in his athletic explosiveness and the batter's box. You know, there's still so much left to be told in, in Evan's story, and. And our thought was if he can play a little left field, if he can play some first base and give himself, you know, that type of utility again, you know, whether it's first base, left field, giving, you know, giving us a chance to rotate tie in for a DH day. There's so many positives about having Evan on our roster. And right now is about as optimistic as we've been about his, his progress as we've been in a couple of years. I found myself thinking through, uh, we've been talking a lot about Matt Brash and, and by all accounts, he's just looked ridiculous, uh, at camp. What had Shannon said that, uh, that, that JP Crawford didn't even know what pitch he was being thrown. So great. The wizardry and just everything that, that he's throwing right now. So I was trying to envision a scenario in which he realizes his potential this year. And he's just ridiculous. And Andres Munoz continues to grow in a way that he did last year. And you are left with these two guys, both as ultra high leverage relievers in the back end of your pen. 
what does that look like for you? Because you you guys have sort of gone away from the traditional traditional closer, which I love. You you've tended to slot guys in based on you know leverage situations. But if you had two that were both equally high leverageable, how how does that work? So I I feel like that is representative of what it looked like for us in the last two months last year. And you know when when Matt Brash clicked as a reliever when we brought him back from Tacoma and he was pretty unbelievable in the second half last year and you know we we saw it from his first game back when he came in in that big series against Toronto and just lit us up and and it continued to think that there's even more upside in there and and frankly we think there is 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 pretty exciting and you know Mooney grew so much from June to the end of the year they're both young exciting stuff and, you know, that doesn't even tell the story of the guy in our bullpen who's been the toughest to hit in the league, which is Seawalt. <laughs> so, it's uh, you know, he's the one that doesn't throw 100 but is, is very effective. And what that allows, Scott, is just the ability to shorten up the game. And, you know, you never have to try to push that starter through. You know, we don't have to gamble on the bridge guy that comes in in the, in the sixth inning you know, to bail you out and, and hope that, you know, they get you to, you know, the back end of your pen. The back end of your pen can start almost immediately. And with with guys like Munoz and Brash, you don't have to run out, you know, a triumvirate of, you know, Brash, Munoz, Seawald to get to an end of a game. You can simply rotate them mm. and keep them fresh and, and make sure that, that every night you have – you know, that type of dominant reliever to, to insert in a game. I was thinking that too, right. I mean, the ability to kind of keep those guys fresh. And if Bryce Miller is everything that you've talked about him being, I mean, it, it would seem logical that we could see him join that pen if there's no room in the rotation, at least short term, no? Yeah, you could see it. There's Actually, there's two other guys in our camp that have caught early attention in that space too, maybe three. You know, we talked about Justin Topa and Mm -hmm. what he brings to the table and physical stuff. And we're seeing it down here. Still don't know, you know, where, where Justin will fit or, or whether it will translate to on-field success, but the stuff is notable. The guy who might have shown the the best stuff to date in, in our early DPs and and live throwing sessions is Prolander Baroa, who is, uh, you know, he'll, he's, highly likely to start back in the minor leagues, but from a pure stuff perspective, he's out here sitting on 97 miles an hour, touching a hundred with what at times looks like the most unhittable slider you could throw. And, and that's in the same camp that has Matt Brash, who obviously has the best slider that's ever been thrown. <laughs> but the, it's a, I, I, I think, you know, Perlander has really caught a lot of attention and he came up with a change up in the off season that looks just nasty. And, his, uh, you know, his, his future may be in our bullpen as well. And, but there's, he's a three pitch, you know, mix guy right now who could start. And then there's Gabe Spire, you know, lefty we picked up in a, in a waiver wire deal from Kansas City who has been, you know, re- he's been a revelation. I know Scott and the staff are very excited. He's, he's thrown in the mid nineties. He's got angle and a slider and you know, it's just different than, than some that really there's not been a big left-handed presence in our bullpen. And, and we feel like we can do a lot to help guys like Gabe Spire and Justin Topa. And they don't sound like Edwin Diaz and, and, you know, the, the Josh haters of the world, but we've had a remarkable run with taking guys that, that have that kind of physical ability and a willingness to work and, and helping them become 
you know, the best versions of them. Do you think that's something you do differently from other clubs? I mean, I just think of all of the success you guys have had, whether it's Seawald or Sadler or you know, some of these guys that have not necessarily been huge names elsewhere and you've really taken them and run with them and throw Brash and Munoz into that list as well. Do you think you scout and handle you know, relievers differently than other teams do? You know, I, I don't know if that's true or not. I do think that we are, we have a program. We have a system that, that starts with scouting and, and identifying the, the physical attributes that a player brings to the table. And, you know, we, we definitely have a running list of players that we have targeted throughout the league that, you know, obviously don't play for us right now, who we feel like if we could acquire that player uh, or pitcher, we have the ability to turn a couple of dials. And, and that's a combination of our analytics department, you know, Joel Furman and, and our analytics group who focus so heavily on pitch quality and usage patterns to our pitching coaches with Pete Woodworth and Trent Blank um, and, and Max Wiener, who's our minor league coordinator. You know, it, it, that trio has done an unbelievable job of, of just sitting down with guys. Woody is, is just a tremendous messenger. Uh, he can he can paint a picture for a player that makes it very easy to understand what we're trying to get to. Trent is I, I is a bit of a, a pitch shaping or or pitch creation savant, <laughs> and you know that the the role that Joel plays is Joel identifies what the the optimal outcome is. Trent envisions how you can create that pitch, and then Woody you know messages this is how we're going to do it, and you know, they work so well together and pitchers respond and you you can sit down with guys like Spire or Topa and talk to them about what they do well and they're not you know they're not oblivious to that they know what they do well and and then we talk about throwing it down the middle <laughs> it sounds you know it sounds crazy but when your ball moves that much you know just just aim for the big part <laughs> it's not going to finish there and it's uh, it's amazing a great example in recent years has been Drew Steckenrider. You know, Steck had when he got here, you know, he was he was a guy who generally avoided the contact. And and if you pitch like you're trying to get to contact, you're going to find out that you miss a lot of bats because you're ahead and counts. And and then we dominate the zone. As a reliever yourself, you must be so jealous of what of just what the information and everything else these guys have available to them now. So hey, I, before you go, I got to ask you about the traject machine. I'm obsessed with this. Uh, you know, Scott had told us about it, and just just talking to Shannon about it. And you know, I, I was trying to figure if I were to first of all, does it make mistakes? If I were to step into the traject machine, is it possible I could get hit, or does it not make mistakes? It does, you won't get hit, uh, and, and I can't tell you whether it makes mistakes. I've, my, in my experience, that has not been the case. But you know, they're, they're, the machine itself is—it's a phenomenal piece of technology, and you know, we're fortunate now to have a pair of them—one in Seattle and one here in, in Peoria—and it, it emulates the physical stuff and delivery coming from the actual pitcher that you might see. You know. Uh, we, as a matter of, of example, you know, I was, I was an early dummy and, and I say that it, honestly, a dummy <laughs> climbing in the cage to face Justin Verlander on traject as we were having the system installed initially last year. And it is very real. I mean, you stand in there and you can't believe how realistic it is. And, 
And right now, this is we we just had one uh, installed here in Peoria prior to spring training, and it's it's a bit of a rage among our players. A lot of the guys are are excited about getting in there, and you know you, you see them getting into track pitches. It's part of the early morning hitting stations where they're rolling through and you know just picking a a, a pitcher to face each day and. And when you have an opportunity just to simply track the ball uh, from the guys that you're going to face regularly, it's a huge advantage to our hitters, you know, visually, emotionally. Uh, you have an opportunity just pick the, the you know, pick the, the best pitch, Justin Verlander's, you know, riding fastball. It, you know, you, you go see Verlander's riding fastball a thousand times, mm. it becomes less, you know, threatening when you get the chance to go face it live and that's the goal so if i were to go in there as a right-handed i wouldn't try to hit but just stand in there in the right-handed batter's box who should i say if i could choose any pitcher who who would you say yeah you got to go just see what that looks like matt ratch that's kind of what i was thinking but it sounds terrifying it is. It's a little scary. And, and, you know, when you're, when you are in the moment and, and, uh, it's a, it, you see how lifelike it is and the, the imagery up on the screen, it is actually Matt Brash throwing the pitch so cool. from Matt Brash's, you know, arm angle and slot. And when you see the, the machine start to shift, you know, for instance, if you, if you could in your mind's eye take a picture of where Penn Murphy releases a slider and, you know, and then the very next pitch, you could flash forward to Chris Flexen throwing a curveball and how much different the release points are on those two pitches. And, and, and you can literally with, with truly the push of a button, you know, adjust to, to see all of those things in a moment. And, uh, and it's, and it's not VR where you've got a headset on and you're, you're, you know, transporting yourself into a different world you're right. standing in a real batter's box with a real helmet on and you're facing what looks like a real pitcher in a different way than any you know uh, I, I guess any machine i've seen before i think i'd need some real like barry bonds body armor going on as well in order to actually just step in there it dawns on me quickly very very quickly we got to run here i know you do as well but it, it i've never looked up your your baseball reference page to see your your batting numbers you have one hit in your big league career, right? You're one for 22. Who did your hit come off of? <laughs> uh, my, my hit came off of Denny Nagel, who was a 20-game really? winner in yeah. the big league. Yeah. Um, and it was I, I quick story. I, I, have, I, I didn't hit a ton through the years. I was a late reliever that, that you know, typically I'd only hit when we were trying to get through the eighth inning to the ninth or the seventh inning to the eighth or – uh, we, in Colorado, sometimes, frankly, we would run through all of our pitchers, and I was the only one left. <laughs> so um, we had uh, I had an opportunity. Most of the guys I would face were always throwing really hard, and I hadn't hit since <laughs> high school. And, and I, I'm I'm looking at these guys and the Todd Warrells, and they, like they, when when you see real velocity after not hitting for a decade, it's a little you know, disconcerting. And I knew I wasn't good at it. And then I stood in and then he became a teammate of mine later. So I can say this jokingly, I stood in for my first, you know, pitch against Denny Nagel and and he he threw a 90 mile an hour heater down the middle for strike one. And I I turned around, Javi Lopez was the catcher. I turned around and I looked at Javi and I said, I think I can hit that. And uh, and he threw another one, and I and I hit a, a, you know, what what I think was a scorcher into center field, and I got to first base, and Fred McGriff was the first baseman, and and he came up and he patted me on the backside, and he said he said, "Atta boy," 
and uh, and and I'm yelling for the ball. Hey, get the yeah, ball! No kidding. The ball. And, do you have it? You know, and and yeah, I do have the ball. Good. But the funny part was, you know, that our first base coach Clint Hurdle was yelling for the ball, and McGriff put his hand on my shoulder and he said, "Is that your first hit?" And I said, "Yeah." He said, "How long have you been in this league, man?" And I and I said, "I don't get to hit a lot." Right. That's awesome. Did you get Denny Nagel to sign it when you became teammates later? I, I did not, but there, there's it, it's it's burned on my brain. That's I, awesome. I, it, every year it gets a little bit harder off the bat. That is that is just great. All right, well, thank you, Jerry. Appreciate it. We'll see you down there all next week, and we'll plan to do this on Thursday again. Sounds good, Mike.